This audio lecture is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U at the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other lectures and to access additional resources, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For additional information on how to take distance education courses for credit towards a fully accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree, please visit our website at virtual.rts.edu. In the case of Christ, Irenaeus also emphasizes unity. One of the things he makes a real strong stress on is, is that Christ is both God and man. Christ is the God-man. He rejects any kind of Gnostic distinction between a heavenly Christ and an earthly Christ that the Gnostics did, maintained. For Irenaeus, Christ was both God and man. He argues, if Christ were not man, then humanity could not be saved in him. And if Christ were not God, then he would not have the power to save very orthodox kind of language. I'll say that again. In stressing that Jesus is the God-man, he argued that if Christ were not man, then humanity could not be saved in Him. If Christ is not fully man, fully human. And he also argues if Christ were not fully God, then He would not have the power to save. Man and redemption. According to Irenaeus, God created man in his image and likeness. Going back to Genesis 1. By image, Irenaeus argued that Adam possessed reason. And he attached to that the idea of free will. So for Irenaeus... The being made in the image of God is specifically associated with reason and free will. The likeness, being made in the likeness of God, he distinguishes between image and likeness. When he talks about likeness, he specifically has in mind the idea of the work and of the Holy Spirit. So in summary... The image, according to Irenaeus, is associated with reason and free will. The likeness, he says, is associated with the Holy Spirit. Now, in terms of the fall, Irenaeus has, a, has, a, has an interesting view. He argues that man, that Adam, was very much like a child. And as children it's almost inevitable that the children will blunder here and there. And so for Irenaeus, the fall of Adam has a certain inevitability, a certain naturalness to it. Adam was a child. He was naive. It, it, it just, it's, it's, it's logical that a naive child would make a mistake. And he says Adam did. Now, in the fall, and this is crucial, in the fall, says Irenaeus, Circle this, put stars around it, whatever you need to do. 
in the fall, the image dash reason free will was not damaged. In Irenaeus, the image was not damaged, but the likeness was lost. That is the Holy Spirit. Yes. It's, it's being imbued with the Holy Spirit. That's right. So now the Holy Spirit... Uh, yes. According to Irenaeus, in the fall, the image was not damaged, but the likeness was lost. And so redemption is the recovery of the likeness. That is, the Holy Spirit coming into the individual. So redemption is associated very much with recovering the likeness, recovering the Holy Spirit. He also is clear that Adam's sin had real consequences for the whole human race. He doesn't offer a detailed explanation. He doesn't come up with a full-fledged doctrine of original sin. But he does see in Adam's disobedience to God as the source for the sinfulness of mankind subsequently. In other words, he sees a solidarity between Adam's disobedience and man's disobedience. Now, for, for this idea of recapitulation, this is one of the most interesting features of Irenaeus' thought. And those of you who, who are into the redemptive historical approach, this may be the first example of the redemptive historical approach. And Irenaeus calls it recapitulation. He argues that there is a relationship between the first Adam and the second Adam. And that what the first Adam lost, the second Adam recovered. If man fell through the solidarity with the first Adam, he can be restored by solidarity with the second Adam. Should I say that again? Would that help? He argues that what man lost in Adam, he recovered in Christ. He goes on to stress that if man fell through solidarity with the first Adam, he can be restored through solidarity with the second Adam. Right. Yep. So you're arguing that those professors here who advocate redemptive historical approach is just the most obvious thing in the world and anybody who doesn't agree with them are just... Well, <laughs> I know. <laughs> I took that and ran with it a little. Yeah. 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 I, I think it's fair to say that different people along the way... I mean, Dick uh, Gaffin at Westminster Seminary, Seminary didn't discover this. Uh, nor did even uh, Voss or Ritterboss. Certainly gave clear articulation to it. But there were other examples. People in, in history have approached this in one degree or another.
So, I mean, we're looking right here at a person who saw it. This idea of the relationship, this a more redemptive historical approach. Now, he doesn't develop it, but he does tap in on a little bit of it. That he originated this whole idea? He said that it has been touched on in various ways. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. He calls this idea recapitulation. And what he's getting at here is that Christ recapitulated the career of Adam in a fundamental Romans kind of way. The career, the redemptive redemptive career of Adam. Adam, by his disobedience, introduced sin and death. The second Adam, Christ, introduces... By his obedience, life and immortality. Okay, that's recapitulation. Just a couple of final comments about Irenaeus. Just a quick run through of some miscellaneous doctrines. Uh, Irenaeus seems to teach that the bread and the wine are really the body and blood of Christ. One finds also, and I'm being very brief here, he also sees a sort of intermediate state. Now, I, I don't know if there's any legitimate link here with, to the doctrine of purgatory, but he does argue that after death, there is an intermediate waiting place that where all Christians reside until the final resurrection. And again, the only exception to those who who do not have to go to this intermediate waiting place are the martyrs. Those who have been martyred immediately go into the presence of God. He also has a a fairly high view of Mary. he does not in any way suggest that she is, is, is a, a mediator or anything of that sort. Uh, he does acknowledge that Mary was sinful. But what he does is according to this recapitulation idea, he views Mary as the new Eve. And the new Eve, as the new Eve, she is the mother of the living. Just as... Eve, the first Eve, was the mother of, of sin and death. And one consequence of his applying the recapitulation idea to Mary is that he argues that when she gave birth to Jesus, she did so without any physical pain. Now, this does not seem to be a constitutive part of his theology, but it but it's there. So there is this, this sort of a separation of Mary in, in this unusual way. And then Irenaeus, although he doesn't come out and say it specifically, he does seem to he does imply an infant Baptist view. Okay? Let me move on here and try to cover some ground on Cyprian, because he's important.
I'd like you to see him soon, yes. Quickly. Born in Carthage, North Africa. Cyprian. 200 to 258 A.D. Born in a pagan family, a wealthy pagan family, the beginning of the 3rd century. He was a rhetorician by profession. Uh, and he was converted by a very influential presbyter by the name of Cecilius. Cecilius. The circumstances are unknown. We don't know anything about it. What we do know is that the conversion seems to have had dramatic effect in his life. First of all, he was a man of great wealth and substance. He sold all of his property and gave the money to the poor. And then, like so many early Christians of these first few centuries, he took a vow of chastity. Somehow, Christianity... Holiness of life was associated with chastity of one form or another. Yes? Uh, a rhetorician. Uh, a skillful orator. In those days, a rhetorician would often function as a civil servant. So there's a connection between uh, a bureaucrat, but, but not simply a bureaucrat, uh, who had was called a rhetorician. He was a presbyter in a church in Carthage. Now, I'm going to move on here. He read Tertullian. In fact, he called Tertullian his master. So one will find that, that in many respects, most respects, theologically, he adopts uh, the views of Tertullian. What's interesting is that he was made later a presbyter shortly after he was baptized, and then within about two or three years of his baptism, he was made the bishop of Carthage in 248 A.D. Uh, this, of course, didn't go well with some folk, but uh, nevertheless, he was made bishop in about 248 A.D. of Carthage, North Africa. Now, Historically, this is significant because in 250 A.D., the Decian persecution from the Emperor Decius got underway. And it was unleashed particularly uh, with, with some viciousness uh, in, in North Africa. You'll recall that uh, Decius required that everyone sacrifice to the image of the emperor. And to demonstrate they had done that, they had this little certificate uh, that they had sacrificed to the emperor. Well, when the persecution began, what does Cyprian do? He flees. He runs off and he hides. But, he doesn't simply abandon the church. He still continues to run the church from his hiding place. He saw no virtue in making himself available for torture. He thought the better part of wisdom was to try to uh, run the church through uh, his... Actually wrote... We have 81 letters that he wrote. These carried back and forth to guide the church. Within weeks, as I, as I said earlier, of the Decian persecution, there were many, many people who lapsed. Christians who either sacrificed to the uh, genius of the emperor or they purchased one of these certificates 
uh, illegally without having actually sacrificed. But almost as quickly as the persecution began, it ended. Decius himself was killed in battle in 251, and so there was the collapse of the persecution itself. So now we have a very interesting situation. There are a lot of people who are called lapsed Christians. These are the people who either went ahead under pressure and sacrificed to the emperor, or they purchased these certificates on the black market. But these lapsed Christians still considered themselves Christians and they wanted back in the church. Now, in earlier persecutions, there had been a system of restoration because there had been earlier persecutions. And essentially, in this system of restoration, Christians, lapsed Christians, could be forgiven. But normally, they would have to undergo a period of supervision. Perhaps uh, go back to a catechetical school and be trained again and go over the, the same material again. But in Carthage, there were so many laymen and clergy, by clergy I mean presbyters, who had lapsed. And this system was simply overwhelmed. It wasn't working. What had happened was that a number of these lapsed Christians would go to people who were called confessors. The confessors. Now, who were the confessors? Well, the confessors were those Christians who did not flee when the persecution came, but they faced the music, which meant they either went, they went to prison and or were tortured. But by God's grace, they survived and were not martyred. So these confessors, having survived the persecution, they held a, a rather exalted status in the local church. It, in fact, it was almost semi-clerical. A confessor, once he got out of prison, once the persecution had subsided, a confessor could come back to the local church, and in many cases, he was automatically made a presbyter. I mean, he had shown his stuff. And he had this very exalted status. In other cases, they were not exactly made presbyters, but they were invited to attend the meetings of the presbyters. So, women were not admitted to the meetings of the presbyters, nor were they made presbyters, even though they may have been confessors. I'm, I'm, I understand the question. <laughs> uh, Now, what had happened, there was a precedent that had occurred uh, some years before in the persecutions in Gaul. And earlier, what had happened was confessors had before had exercised the right themselves to restore lapsed Christians back into the church on their own authority. This had happened before. And now these new, different confessors in Carthage were now permitting lapsed Christians to return to the church without going through the presbyters. 
on their own special authority, they were letting people back into the church. Cyprian, despite the fact that he had fled when the going got tough, was absolutely irate at the very lax standards for restoration. He felt that those who had who had sacrificed or who had purchased the certificates, and incidentally, the Labelli Pacis, uh, that refers to those certificates of restoration. These were certificates that uh, the confessors gave to the lapsed Christians to permit them to return to the church. So some of these confessors were even issuing little certificates saying it's okay for you to enter back in and participate in the local church. Well, Cyprian does not like the state of affairs. He, as you'll see, much prefers the system of restoration that is organized and orderly and there's a substantial amount of time involved before the person is actually permitted to come back and participate fully in the local church. But these confessors were letting people back in too easily, too quickly. And that bothered Cyprian. He wrote a book entitled On the Lapsed, a book on the subject of the lapsed Christians. He admitted, he acknowledged that lapsed Christians could be forgiven their sins. But on a condition. The condition was both subjective and objective. Subjectively, they had to be repentant. Sorry that they had done what they had done. And objectively, they had to demonstrate through acts of penance that they were sorry for what they had done. That's what Cyprian advocates in his book on the lapsed. They could be forgiven, but they had there had to be a subjective and objective penance, repentance. Uh, Cyprian said, I'm happy for the confessors to make recommendations. If there's someone that you know that's a lapsed Christian, they want to come back, fine. You make your recommendation. But the final decision, says Cyprian, resides with a local bishop. And this is where Cyprian puts a lot of emphasis. Only the bishop can judge such complicated matters. A council was held in 251 AD. That is the same year the persecution subsided. And they reached a decision. They made a policy on how to deal with the lapsed Christians who wanted to come back to the church. A council was held in 251 A.D. First, each lapsed Christian who wanted to come back to the church was interviewed individually. That was to determine basically the subjective element. Were they really sorry for what they had done? But on the objective side, they did some interesting things. For those lapsed Christians who had not sacrificed, but had illegally purchased the certificate, indicating that they had, even though they really hadn't, those persons, after doing some objective penance, were then later 
restore. There was a period of time and a number of acts under the supervision of a church person, a, a presbyter, they could then be restored. But those lapsed Christians who'd actually sacrificed, Cyprian lowers the boom and his cohorts at Carthage. He says that even if they show repentance, they do acts of repentance, of, of penance, they will be restored to the church only on their deathbed. Only on their deathbed. You can see that Cyprian feels very strongly about this. There's a certain irony to this, given the fact that he had fled uh, when all this was going on. Tim, uh, is it important? I need to press on if I can. Uh, I don't think this is necessarily linked to that. Now, later on, uh, after Cyprian, this harsh policy towards those who had actually sacrificed was, was lessened, moderated, and so they were actually restored before uh, reaching their death's door. No, just Council of Carthage. It's, it'll be, it will be adequate. Now, you have the harsh Cyprian and his cohorts on the one hand, but there were others who felt that Cyprian was being far, far too harsh. They pulled out of the local church in Carthage and formed their own congregation. And they even elected their own bishop, Bishop Fortunatus, in Carthage. And so there was a split in the church in Carthage. Uh, I'm going to skip some stuff here, but I'll just summarize it very quickly. One finds essentially the same kind of split in the church in Rome concerning Novation and Cornelius. Uh, Novation was the more rigorous of, than, than Cornelius. Novation wanted to stress that the lapsed had to really go through a very serious period of repentance. Cornelius was much more moderate in willing, the la willing to permit the lapsed to come back to the church in Rome much more easily. So you have a similar kind of church split. Uh, this is the first, as far as I know, the first schism in the Roman church. Now throughout history, you will find a number of splits between having, what I mean by that, there's two bishops. Or later on, there'll be two and sometimes three popes at the same time. But this is the first, historically, I think the first point at which we can talk about or what scholars talk about is as the anti-pope. An anti-pope means a pope uh, uh, elected or, or uh, who is uh, 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 um, competing with the another elected pope in the same city, same in, in Rome. Fortunatus. They, they were more tolerant, more willing to permit the lapse to come more quickly back into the church. The rigorists were Novation in Rome and Cyprian in Carthage. Fabian. I forget. <laughs> Which Fabian? Yeah, don't worry about Fabian. 
Well, that's right. He was. In response to the schism in Rome and the schism in, in Carthage, Cyprian wrote his most famous work with this title, On the Unity of the Catholic Church. On the Unity of the Catholic Church. It takes a very harsh view. Those who split off, such as Novation and such as uh, Fortunatus and his group, Novation really split from Cornelius. Novation is the guy who was the, the rigorist, and and he was not the he was not the first elected. Cornelius was the first elected pope, and then Novation pulls away. Sorry if I wasn't clear about that. This whole book is then about the unity, in view of the splits that has occurred in his native Carthage and in Rome. Cyprian addresses himself to what is the unity of the church? What makes us one? And according to Cyprian, the unity of the church is found in the bishop. The unity of the church is found in the bishop. The bishop is the glue that holds the church together, says Cyprian. He uses some very striking language. Bishops stand in the place of the apostles. And he's not willing to simply talk about this line of succession of apostle, bishop, bishop, bishop. But he wants to talk about that each bishop is chosen by a special decree of God. Cyprian has a very high view of the bishop and his function in the church. Some of the implications of his very, very high view of bishop goes like this. He makes it rather clear that what constitutes the unity of the church is not first apostolic teaching, but submission to the bishop. Let me say that again. What is the basis of unity of the church. It's not quite so much the apostolic teaching, although that needs to be there as well. But the emphasis is not on apostolic teaching, but more on submission to the bishop. At one point, Cyprian goes so far as to say that he is not concerned about doctrine. He doesn't care how right a person's doctrine is. If he is not in the church, then he is a heretic. So simply being in the church is the most fundamental basis for unity. He will make statements such as these. Rebellion against the bishop is rebellion against God. Are you getting the drift? <laughs> he goes on to say, and this is a statement that will be repeated again and again, there is no salvation outside the church. The key idea then is that rebellion against the bishop is rebellion against 
God. Well, it's reflective of the growing importance of the bishop. This is what we see here is you have Tertullian and Irenaeus putting a lot of emphasis on the importance of the bishop and his link to back to the apostles. What you find in Cyprian is going a step further. He is exalting even more the bishop. Well, they're, they're, they're opponents to Cyprian in different places, but he wins the day. Um, there's one little section here. Uh, we've got just a couple of minutes. Let me just finish this last bit and, and we'll stop on Cyprian. In this particular treatise on the unity of the Catholic Church, there is one passage that has been hotly debated by scholars. In the chapters 4 and 5, it turns out there are two versions of these two chapters. One is called the received text. The other is called the primacy text. Chapters 4 and 5, there are two versions. And the passages... The two versions center on Matthew 16, where Christ calls Simon the rock on whom the church is built. According to the received text, I'll elaborate here in just a moment. Cyprian says that Peter is the principle of unity in the church. Peter because he was the one on whom the church was built. He is the principle of unity in the church. He's the unifying point. Now, the principle, P-L-E. Now, uh, Cyprian goes on to say, focus on Peter now. He's the principle of unity of the church. He's narrowed it down now to one person. Cyprian goes on in the received text to also say that the other apostles have equal authority with Peter. But when it comes to this question of a unifying point as a symbol of unity, he goes to Peter. That's according to the received text. Now there's no unequivocal statement that Peter's jurisdiction is somehow of higher authority than other apostolic uh, jurisdictions. Okay, that's the received text. So there's a real strong view of Peter as a symbol of unity, but it doesn't discount the other, uh, the, the other apostles. They are not necessarily demeaned in the received text. The primacy text, the other version, speaks of the one chair of Peter on whom the church is built. There is the explicit talk about Peter having primacy over the other apostles, which is not the case in the other version, the received text. But in this, the primacy text, Peter is specifically given primacy over the other apostles. And there is no mention of any sort of equality with 
the other uh, among the apostles. That's why it's called the primacy text. Yes, absolutely. In both texts, Peter is the principle of unity, but in one, that is the primacy text, he is called, he's also primary, as primacy over the other apostles. Now, scholars still debate as to which of these is really the, the reflects the mature thought of Cyprian. One view that's gained a lot of currency is that Cyprian wrote them both but under different circumstances. That originally, and one might argue this is the true Cyprian view, he first wrote the primacy text. That Peter had primacy over the other apostles. And uh, Benvenot is the French scholar who says he wrote both versions, but that originally... It was the primacy text first, but then he got into some controversies with Rome after having exalted the primacy of Peter and then went back and rewrote this chapter and modified and, and withdrew the idea of the primacy of Peter, still retaining the idea that Peter is the symbol of unity. That's his explanation, Benveno. So the first one was the primacy text, which one would argue is, is the, the original view of Cyprian. But then as a result of controversy with Rome, he pulled back and wasn't, uh, he, was, he was mad at Rome. And so he wasn't going to advocate the primacy of Peter now. And he went back and wrote the same, wrote another version called the received version, the received text. At any rate, I'll end with his death. Cyprian was arrested in 257 A.D. Now there was another wave of persecution. Cyprian, as bishop of Carthage, is arrested. And he goes to his death with 257 A.D. And he goes to his... He's arrested in 257 and he's martyred in 258. And he dies with great composure. There's no fleeing the persecution this time. Generally speaking, then, Cyprian, his contribution is not so much in terms of theology, the doctrine of God and the doctrine of Christ. His contribution has to do with ecclesiology, the more practical concerns. So what we see through the three men that we've looked at, Tertullian, Irenaeus, and Cyprian, we find that there is the first little inklings of a system of penance having to do with the lapsed. We find that the church is held together by the office of the bishop. And finally, of all the bishops, the epicenter of the church is the, Rome, is the church in Rome, the bishop of Rome. We start to find this focus on the Roman bishop as having some special significance now at the toward the middle of the third century. We find expression given to that notion now by Cyprian.
This audio lecture is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U at the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other lectures and to access additional resources, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For additional information on how to take distance education courses for credit towards a fully accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree, please visit our website at virtual.rts.edu.